in my um, in my waiting room, but it's too busy today. So yeah, is this your office you're at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not very. It's very boring in the background, but. Yeah, no, it looks fine. That looks fine. Well, th thanks for joining me. I've I've actually um, been looking forward to chatting with you. I've, we've not met, obviously, you know that, but uh, I've I've long kind of uh, admired you from afar. So oh, I was, that's I was very thrilled. Nice. Yeah, I was thrilled that you agreed to come on. Um, so I, I I thought maybe we could talk a little bit first about just tell me about yourself personally. I know you came from the East Coast. I know that you like um, sailing. Yeah, so I'm from the East Coast. Um, I actually was born in Toronto, um, and my dad's from the Maritimes. My mother's from Ontario. So as soon as he was able, he dragged her back out to the East Coast. But that's really where I consider home. Yeah, and and you're a big sailor, right? I am. Yeah, that's something that's in the in the blood. So we always grew up on the water. Um, my family always had some type of boat, sailboat, powerboat. Um, sailing lessons were what you did in the summertime, and uh, and then I married a sailor as well. So we met competing, and uh, we competed on that family tradition. Wow! And and do you sail in Toronto as well? For sure. Yeah, we have a sailboat that we keep at Toronto Island, and actually during last last summer it was our total haven. So that's where we would escape on the weekends, and we went on a two and a half week cruise up into uh, the Thousand Islands. And yeah. for a little while, we forgot there was a pandemic. Yeah, it's funny how you can do that in downtown Toronto. You've got kind of the harbor there, and you actually can yeah. do quite a bit of waterfront activities there. You wouldn't you yeah. wouldn't think it being downtown, but um, and and you and I actually uh, graduated the same year uh, from residency. You're uh, 2007. I graduated 2007. Yeah. Uh, okay, great. you stayed in Toronto, obviously, um, you opened up your practice. Did you open up your practice in Toronto? Uh, it's compass dermatology, but did you open that up right away or did it, were you somewhere else before? No. So I worked at two different offices, one, which, uh, was with Dr. Scott, Nikki Grant, uh, and sorry, she just goes by Dr. Scott, Nikki now. Um, so at Bay Dermatology, I cut my teeth there and then, um, I uh, worked at another sort of combo office, and I also was hired to run the dermatology at the MedCan Clinic, which was uh, Canada's largest private healthcare facility. Mm -hmm. And so I did that for 10 years as well before oh, wow. starting my own, yeah. And were you always in aesthetic dermatology? Was that a big part of your practice from the beginning, or is it something that you developed with time? I definitely developed it with time. I mean, I think it was something that caught my interest early on. Um, and just as I got out into practice, I kept things really general at first, but I definitely did gravitate towards aesthetics. And it was a type of population, uh, patient population that I liked. It sort of scratches that art artistic itch. And, um, and I was good at it. So you always like to do things that you're good at. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you find in in plastics, um, oftentimes, you know, it'll take a while before people kind of really transition to aesthetics because there's a there's just a, a kind of a high level of um, uh, expertise that you need that's beyond just being a surgeon. Is it the same in dermatology? Do people transition slowly, or or you know, do you get oftentimes grads that jump right into aesthetics like they would any other subspecialty? I think you're seeing. Some people that, that, you know, certainly, you know, jump off to aesthetics a little bit quicker, but it does take time to build a practice, right? So, you know, you, and most of my aesthetic patients come from my medical practice. And uh, so that was just that, 
that slow build, but uh, I don't know. I, I think it's nice to have a mix of both. And I think that's still what most dermatologists do. Yeah. So, so what would you say that you uh, do a lot of now aesthetically? What would be the bulk of your practice? I think injectables would be the bulk of my practice. Um, and then uh, uh, supervising the laser. So most of the laser procedures I don't do myself, but I'm certainly involved in all the cases that, uh, that are performed on my patients. Yeah. And, and I know you um, routinely get involved with media which I think is great. Um, I, I did want to have that as a talking point. Um, I've had that in my notes uh, yeah. because, because not a lot of physicians um, feel comfortable talking to the media, um, even when they're really great uh, at what they do. I think that's kind of a unique skill and it takes a unique type of person that likes doing it, that wants to do it, that's good at it. Uh, and you, you've done a lot of it. So I, can you uh, tell me a little bit about that? How did you get involved in in kind of your media sources? Yeah, for sure. It, it's, you know, it was a happy accident really because I was working with Dr. Scott Nikki and she did a lot of media and uh, she had a, an opportunity come her way that she couldn't do because she had a conflict. And she came to me and said, oh, you're interested in doing this. And I said, oh, you know what? I'm just one year at a residency. Like, I, I, I don't think I have the experience. I can't do it. She said, look, like literally nobody knows more about skin than you do right now. So you're absolutely qualified and capable of doing this. And then, you know, it was, it was great because that, that first project I did was with Vaseline. And so it was very... Um, you know, is really a core product that we use in dermatology and one that it was just, you know, it was about dry skin and eczema. So it was something very easy to get behind and a brand that, um, that I didn't have any questions about. And then when I looked back in my life, I, I, did, I was in student politics years and years ago and actually had had some media training. So I kind of forgot about that other part of my life and it, and it all sort of came together. So I wouldn't say that I was keen to be in media, but then once I did the first project, then, you know, people will find you when they Google or they'll see you. And then it just sort of keeps coming your way. And I have a good rapport with, you know, I can work well with the corporations, know what they want and need. And then just on straight media, that's not brand related. Um, you know, I know a lot of the, the players in, um, you know, that are in the magazines and television and things like that. And we just, it's, I, they know they can get what they need from me and I can be quick and efficient and I'm, I'm not going to be biased. So uh, that's how the relationship builds. So, so do you find that you've become uh, like a, a go-to dermatologist for a lot of these sources when there's something to be discussed? Are they, are you kind of first at the Rolodex? Is there a yeah, Rolodex I mean, anymore? I, I don't know. I don't know if there's a Rolodex. I mean, <laughs> I think I've definitely, you know, had relationships with a lot of people and, and they'll certainly hit me up as one of their sources, but they're also really great about making sure that pieces are balanced and they get, you know, information from different expert sources. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I probably do three or four interviews a week um, for various, you know, various sources. So yeah. I, I consider that part of my, my uh, educational offering. So, you know, I teach residents, but I, I consider that as an important part of teaching uh, the public is getting, you know, the actual experts like plastic surgeons, dermatologists to, to be the ones speaking about the things that we do and that we train in. Yeah. And that's, that's a really interesting point that, that you view it as an educational thing. Cause, cause you are, you're educating the public. And like I said, I, it, it always amazed me that, that people weren't more interested in doing so. I mean, I, I even find with, 
with this, we have a hard time kind of getting people to convince to come on. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think people are nervous. Even really people who are experts, you'd consider them an expert. And I, I think deep down, a lot of physicians are nervous about kind of talking in the open and being um, putting forth opinions and comments that they're not sure how they'll be viewed. Um, and, and they view it from that perspective, as opposed to what you just said, which is you are educating just like you would educate residents or just like you would educate at a conference, uh, which or no your one, patients or in your, the room. Yeah. Like every patient encounter is an educational event. And uh, right. so you're doing that constantly, but I, I don't think people kind of view it as such, but so do you, do you view that there are certain gaps in the public knowledge when it comes to, I mean, we're going to talk about aesthetics, but I, I really mean aesthetic dermatology that, that you try to fill in or, um, how do you go about deciding how to discuss things with the public? Yeah, it depends on what, you know, what the topic of the day is. And sometimes it's something very serious. You know, we're talking about side effects that can happen with certain procedures. Sometimes it's a light and fluffy Hollywood story. So it, it really depends on what the the news outlet has in mind. Um, I don't tend to push my own stories as much. It's more things that come to me, but um, gaps, I think, I think a big gap, you'll probably agree, is, you know, who are the people, how do you, how do you differentiate experts from non-experts, Yeah. right? So, and I think that that is a quagmire that I don't know if we're ever going to get people to solve because if you, you know, you read some people's websites, they're credentialing and you and I would know that what's on there, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, hold water. It's like, it's fluffy credentials that don't mean anything. Um, so I think it's really hard for the public to know who to go to. So that's one of the things I do try to educate on is questions to ask and how to know if you're at the right office. Um, sometimes it's just simple things like people, the lay public doesn't know the difference between Botox and fillers. Yeah. You know, they'll say, oh, that person has so much Botox in their face. It's all puffy. You know, you're like, no, 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 that's not, that's not what's going on there. But um yeah, I mean, so, so do you think that's important? I mean, I know when you're right, I mean, in the aesthetic world, um, educating the public is really important in terms of what, who they're going to see, who their providers are. Um, uh, is this an issue that is at the forefront of the public public's consciousness? Do you think the the average person in the public? I think it should be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think also, you know, what's too much and going too far. So I think we always play this dance between knowing that you need experts to perform these procedures, yet you don't want to make it so intimidating that people are scared to go and, you know, dabble in some of these procedures. So I think that's a, a balance between assuring the public, but ha having them have a healthy fear so that they actually seek the experts. Yeah. And, and certainly aesthetics has become uh, so much more accessible over the past number of years. Uh, I've said this on a number of the previous podcasts that it, it, a lot of that has been social media. It's made yeah. it accessible, made it kind of um, not as intimidating. Um, but then, but then on the other hand, it also it also tends to wash everybody with the same brush. It is really hard to differentiate um, quality um, for the average person. So. I don't know if there's a question in there, but I, I guess it goes, speaks to your point about knowing who are reputable providers and experienced providers and, and what these procedures actually are and how they are medical procedures. Right, 
Right. Yeah. I think that's important because I think, you know, it's become so commonplace and particularly through social media that people will equate them, you know, to getting their hair dyed or their eyebrows waxed. And certainly we know that the consequences of things go wrong can be much more significant. Um, but again, it goes back to that balance between you wanting people to feel uh, that they can come and ask questions and, and be you know, comfort in the fact that there is a lot of expertise out there, but then still keeping a bit of a, you know, a, an eye open to make sure they get to the right people. I, I think it's a, it's a hard balance and I think it's very hard for the public to sort out. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's maybe talk about or explore that with regards to dermatology. Cause I think if there's one area that has, um, from my perspective, really exploded over the past year or two, it's dermatology slash skincare. And, um, I mean, it's really, uh, uh, it's uh, on the one hand, it's good. Uh, I think the education that you see out there to the average person about the importance of skincare is really unbelievable. I mean, really it's high level stuff compared to what, you know, what people knew even five years ago. Um, but then again, on the other hand, it really, um, what do you think about that? Is it a good thing to have this accessible or, um, is it almost too uh, watered down in terms of what people are getting with their skincare? Is it too, is it too accessible? I guess. I don't think it's too accessible. I think there's a lot of noise out there. So again, it's very hard for people to tease out um, what's hype and what's real. Um, on the other hand, the products are getting so much better that there's a, you know, a lot more active ingredients and the prices are going down. So those again are accessible for people, which is nice. People are much more passionate about skincare because they do see that these some of these products can make significant differences. Where before you would only think a laser or injectable or plastic surgery could do that. Um, and I love the fact that younger people are getting into skincare because it's always a struggle when someone sort of comes to the realization at 40 that they haven't been looking after their skin. And then now we're trying to reverse, you know, 40 years of not wearing sunscreen you know, not having a retinol in your skincare routine, uh, using, you know, rubbing alcohol on your face at night, whatever, you know, it would be <laughs> sleeping in your makeup, all these sins. Um, yeah. So I love it when a 20 year old, 20 year old comes to me or, you know, in their, in their 20s and says, okay, what can I do now to be preventative? Um, that's a great conversation to have. Yeah. So uh, what, um, how do you go about deciding um what skincare regimen is good for someone uh, how do you how do you assess that yeah so we'll look at if they have underlying issues do they have pigmentation issues do they have acne rosacea do they have scarring from old acne and we might focus our active ingredients on on, on targeting those um and yeah, we look at budget for the patient. And I also just look at like how complicated do you want it to be? There are people who really love an intense 10 step routine. I am not one of those people. <laughs> but, but, so I, I try to gauge that and like, what their level of effort is that they want to put in. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then we, you know, we'll work on it. We'll custom, we'll make, you know, something for them that works. And then I'll say, let's just try these things. We'll switch these products out for what you have. And then we'll slowly sort of keep adjusting as we go. And it'll change by the season. It will change with different periods in their life. They're pregnant. They're not pregnant. You know, they're working more indoors like people are right now or it's summertime and they're, and they're outside doing outdoor activities. 
Um, so it's a constantly evolving thing, yeah. but it's fun. You kind of have to be like a little chemist, you know? And, and what about brands? Like, you, you know, the market's so, so flooded with different skincare brands. Um, and, you know, we like to think there's, there are some differences between them, but, but in reality, there's a lot of good ones. So do you think that there's a yeah. lot, do you think by and large are interchangeable or, or, um, I mean, how do you do it in your practice? Do you have a bunch of different companies that you use or do you stick with a few? Yeah. So we, we have a pu- pretty curated, you know, skincare wall in our office, of, you know, brands that we believe in and things that we try to make sure that each brand that we have is bringing something different to the table um so it could be a like a star a star product that they have and only they have something like that um you know we have some products that tend to skew a little bit more uh towards you know natural organic because we have some people that really prefer that mm-hmm. and um but then i'll also recommend drugstore costco brands to my patients as well so again if they if they're just starting out and and to spend you know six hundred dollars on a skincare routine is too much I'll say, you know, go out and purchase this drugstore brand for your cleanser and your moisturizer. Let's spend some money on, say, the vitamin C serum, because I think that's where you're going to get the most benefit. And then maybe instead of them buying an over-the-counter retinol, I'll prescribe them a tretinoin. So there's, you know, there's lots of ways to deal with it. I don't know if I really answered your question, but I mean, the thing is, like, a lot of it is marketing, right? So it's very hard, again, for patients to see, to, like, sort through the marketing. Uh, It's, it's, it's compelling. I mean, there's a reason why marketers do well. Yeah, I mean, you're you're right. They're marketed well. They look great. A lot of these products look great, but they are everywhere. I mean, it's amazing to me how. I mean, I'm not sure if there's. It used to be there's a pretty clear distinction between medical grade and non-medical grade, but I'm not sure if there's such a clear distinction anymore because you can get a lot of products over the counter at um, at drugstores at accessible places and. In fact, there's there's online shops that you can get uh, oh, yeah. a lot of these things without uh, without a physician being involved as well. So, um, I I don't know how the average person would decide what they wanted to to be on without someone yeah. guiding them through the process. Yeah, I mean, people do a lot of their own research. You know, they like there's a lot of information on the website. Some is good. Some is like on webs on the web in general. Some is good. Some is bad. I think one way you can decipher medical grade versus non is one of the things I tell my patients is to don't look at the front of the bottle, look at the back of the bottle. So if you're going to purchase something, for example, I always go back to vitamin C. If you're going to purchase something and you want vitamin C, you want it to be between 10 and 15%. And the bottle has to stay that percentage on it. Because if not, then clearly you're not getting that percentage. So the medical grades tend to call it percentages and numbers, I think a little bit more than some of the me too products that you would get, you know, at the drugstore. Yeah. Yeah. The other interesting thing I find about the whole evolution of skincare and skincare marketing is that um, the public's really educated in terms of the ingredients now. And you see that a lot in the education, like people really come in knowing a lot about, you know, hyaluronic acid and vitamin and antioxidants, vitamin C or retinoic acid. I mean, these are, it's, it's kind of broken down the level of sophistication of marketing and education has gotten so good that people really understand the, the, the active ingredients, uh, very well. 
I, I think. Yes. And in, in, in that sense, it's kind of nice because you can somewhat be interchangeable with what products you use if they're really understanding the nature of the products. Yeah. And it's nice to be able to have that conversation with a patient say, you know, I think this would be good for you because it has niacinamide in it. And they say, oh, yes, yeah, so I read that niacinamide is helpful for blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, sometimes it actually cuts some time out of the conversation and, and you can get right to the, the main recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any concerns about what age people start on? Do you think do you think there's any concern about people starting on these things being at, at too young of an age? Because they I do think there's there's a lot of people now that are starting in their 20s. These, these aren't things that people start in their 40s anymore. And not just, I'm not just talking about sunscreen. I mean, people are on really strong actives from an early age. Yeah. I mean, I don't think so because I think most of them, you know, they're anti-inflammatory. They're, uh, you know, they, they work well with sunscreens, um, like for example, the antioxidants. Um, so as long as you know, I, as long as people aren't getting irritated, you know, if somebody is putting too many masks and too many serums and the skin gets irritated, but that could happen at 20, that could happen at 40. Um, my, I guess my only thing would be, I just tell like, you know, people who come in and then their twenties and thirties, like you look amazing now, you're probably never going to look this good. Enjoy it while you can. And then we can ramp things up in a little bit, but not everyone likes to be that laissez-faire. So. Yeah. Um, do you find a difference between, do you treat a lot of men? Do you find a difference? I do treat a significant number of men, but I think it's, you know, the, as, as, as the number, as the clinic gets bigger, it's the proportions still stick to more women than men. Yeah. And, and what about ethnicity? Do you find that there's a difference in how you care for people in ethnicity? And it's kind of a, to me, it's an interesting question beyond just pigment, but do people kind of have different needs when their ethnicity is different? You know, I, I don't think so. I think it's more about what are the underlying things. Is somebody oily? Is somebody, you know, acne prone, um, pigment prone? So I don't think it matters. Like the ethnicity doesn't seem to play a large role in that that I've seen in my practice. Mm-hmm. Ethnicity may come in when you're looking at, um, you know, doing aesthetics. Uh, so, you know, whether it's for, you know, prejuvenation, anti-aging, just knowing the, the different, um, you know, styles of face, different lips, things like that, that go within certain ethnicities. But, you know, like I look at my family, my, like, you know, my husband's half Burmese and half Scottish and, you know, my daughter is kind of like a little bit of everything. So, you know, if I had to say what ethnicity is, is she, it's hard to pin it down nowadays. Right. It's a very global mix ethnicity. Yeah. 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 Um, and again, I, I guess the, the the next thing is, do you get people that uh, are on wrong products? Do you, do you ever get patients that are coming to you that have oh, yeah. kind of been online or been kind of at other clinics where they're, they've got access to the wrong ingredients, wrong products, and, and they're yeah. just going down the wrong path? Is this a is that a concern that you're seeing now with the accessibility of these products? Yeah, I think a couple of things. You, you see people who switch too often. So they'll try something, they'll give it one or two days, and then they're like, oh, it's not working. And they switch, they switch, they switch. You really need to give a product about six weeks to see if it's going to uh, be helpful for you. Now, obviously, if you have a huge reaction to a product, I'm not suggesting you stay on that for six weeks, but there is a skin cycle and you need to see that turn around. Um, 
And then I think one of my pet peeves is this obsession with plant-based and natural uh, products. You know, poison ivy is is a plant. Arsenic is natural. It doesn't necessarily mean that they belong in or on our bodies. And I think there's a lot of companies that do what's called greenwashing, where you know they're organic, natural, and they're full of plants and essential oils, and those can be extremely irritating to the skin. So patients just keep adding on and adding on and they get into a huge spiral of very reactive skin. So sometimes it's about putting them on a diet with their skincare, um, pairing it all back and then slowly adding things back in. Yeah. Um, what about pigment? Do you treat much in the way of pigment? I love treating melasma. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the things I'm passionate about. Um, because it, it, I love like lifelong relationships with patients. And unfortunately for these patients, you know, melasma is a chronic condition, but um, we do have a melasma program that we put patients on. So it starts with skincare, looking at their background, what they've tried in the past. We combine over-the-counter products with um, some pretty high dose prescription products, oral medications, and then we use microneedling and even injectable products as well as lasers. So it's, there's a whole system that we have and uh, it's really rewarding. Yeah. Interestingly enough, melasma has been done well during the pandemic because people are under masks and they're not going on vacation. <laughs> they're not getting a lot of sun to, right. to aggravate. Yeah. 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 I mean, so, so would you say that this is kind of an area that uh, you've had a lot of success treating? Melasma has always been such a difficult problem. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just a, and part of it is also because people want a very quick solution to it and yes. they're not really ready to be in a long-term program and have multimodalities with lasers and, and skincare for an extended period of time. Yeah, you're right. So I think that sometimes by the time they get to me, they're very frustrated. They've tried lots of things back to that educational component. I spent a lot of time going over, you know, what we need to do, what the steps are. Um, and so I think, that gets people on board as well. And just to let them understand that there's no quick fix. And if they're looking for a quick fix, then, you know, I don't think I'm, I'm the right choice. I don't think anybody is the right choice. I think if anyone tells you they can quick fix melasma, it's not true. Yeah. Um, how's, how has uh, COVID affected how you treat patients? Do you do a lot of online uh, virtual consults? You know, we, at the beginning when we were doing online, but I, as a dermatologist, I, I still really, I like to see it with my own eyes. I use a dermatoscope a lot to look at things, like to touch and feel. So, you know, we have spaced things out. Appointments are longer, but as my, if I can get people into the office, that's still my preference. Follow-ups and things like that, I'm happy to do over the phone and people send me um, you know, photos. I, I do a lot of telemedicine as well. So I'm, I'm used to, um, you know, to dealing with photos, but that's usually, you know, a provider to provider. So it's a, it's a, it is slightly more challenging for, uh, to be physician to patient. Yeah. Yeah. We, I, I, I'm with you. I, I, I'm not crazy about it. I didn't quite like it. I, not that I do a lot of it, but um, particularly during the first lockdown, we tried to do a fair bit of uh, online consultations, but yeah. then you get into problems with not having uh, like a high enough definition camera that's looking at someone's face or their skin so that you can actually see okay. what they're complaining about. Yeah. And, and uh, it, it kind of 
when you're looking, like even right now, when you're looking through a, a computer camera, it, it, it just washes out. You can't really tell. And it's 2D, right? You can't see. <laughs> and like, so I just found, like, I'm sure you found the same. You know, you'd, they'd have to come in and you just end up doing the consultation all over you again. You do. That's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is. A, I mean, it works well if you're just educating, I think, if you're just kind of talking about topics in a general sense. Um, I think it's very difficult to be specific. I don't think the technology is that accessible yet to be able to do that. And I like to lift and, you know, move people's tissue and, and like, you know, I really get in there. So I can't do that on a, on a camera. <laughs> Um, you, you talked about in one in a recent article about the Zoom Boom. Can you can you describe what that is? It's such a cool name, the Zoom Boom. I like the, that. The Zoom Boom. <laughs> so the I mean the Zoom Boom is that when we when we came out of the first lockdown in end of May, beginning of June, you had people who had just spent you know two two and a half months all of a sudden transitioning to Zoom calls, Skype, you know iPhones whatever it was. And they are now spending hours on hours looking at themselves and not just looking at a straight picture of themselves, looking at themselves in animation. They can see when they're frustrated. They can see when the camera's looking down, looking up. And I think there was a study out of Harvard. Um, there's a great um, uh, researcher, Nancy Etkoff, and she writes on the science of beauty and why beauty matters. And uh, she spoke about a study that they, they tracked what you looked at when you were on a Zoom call and 80, 90% of the time you're looking at your own image. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then the other interesting thing I think is like men, I mean, this is my take on things and, and maybe it's just, I don't know. I, I think it's the same for me. I get up in the morning, brush my teeth, put on some makeup. I don't look in the mirror the whole rest of the day. And I think maybe women might print a little bit more, put on some lipstick halfway through the day. But the, the amount of men that came in because of that Zoom boom afterwards was, I think, very disproportionately high um, compared to the regular percent of men that I'm seeing. So all of a sudden, you guys are, are you know, seeing what you really look like. <laughs> and not liking it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, 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 would you say that when somebody looks, what do you think people are looking at, particularly when they're looking at themselves? Uh, I, I always tell my, I'll tell you what I'm thinking here. Yeah. Um, I always tell my patients that uh, when, when you're looking at someone else, you're staring at their eyes and kind of their their peri um, orbital area and you're assessing everything about their lids and their um, crow's feet and their eyebrow position and their forehead. But then when people look at themselves, I, I mean, I think a lot of people are like this. They're looking at their lower face and they're staring at their necks and their lower face and yeah. uh, and really hard on their I mean, I think the neck is kind of the thing. The, we're the hardest poor on. neck. The poor neck. <laughs> this is poor thing. I mean, would you G define that? I think so. I think they really, I think when you, so I think you're right. People look at eyes, they look at the mouth when they're chatting with people. The other thing that, that everybody else sees that we don't see is you don't have a conversation. Like you and I are having a conversation literally face to face right now, um, virtually face to face, I guess. Yeah. But usually when you're talking to someone, you're in a, you're in a group, you're around a table, you're at a party and you don't usually go right you know, straight face to face with people. So most people see ourselves, we see ourselves from the profile and from the oblique, right? right. 
So that front on picture is not what most of the world sees. So people start obsessing about symmetry, this side versus that side. And, and for the most part, I don't think that the other people are assessing that. Um, I think we, when we look at ourselves, we'll hone in on like one individual feature, like it's a line or it's the neck, mm -hmm. you know, it's a wrinkle or a brown spot. Um, but really when I do assessments on patients, I try to zoom out. I learned this actually from a uh, great dermatologist, Dr. Vince Bertucci, is he kind of in his mind almost blurs the patient, takes a look and really assesses the overall shape and, and balance of the face first. And then we'll start honing in on features. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, it's hard to do for yourself. Yeah, that's right. You're right. You tend to just hone in that, that one thing that bugs you about yourself more than anything else, as opposed to take yeah. a step back. Um, what do you find uh, people come in asking a lot for, or what, what kind of treatments are they requesting? Um, I think lower face, as you said, it is one that people tend to focus on a lot. Um, you know, still the classic nasal labial fold, which then, you know, requires education to sort of back up and talk to people about, you know, where does that fold? Because this is a nasal labial fold for people who aren't doctors, but, you know, where does that come from? Why do we have that? And, and to, to steer them away from just simply, Mm -hmm. you know, okay, we erase that line and you're going to look better. So it's just about, you know, the whole, um, the whole of people will come in for Botox for particular lines, but then again, I like to re-educate about, it. it's not just about the lines, it's about balancing the pulleys and the levers on the face and, and giving you, you know, a rested appearance. I just, I don't want to just like zap out that one line. Yeah. That's not really going to make you happy. Yeah, I agree with that. It's kind of, um, you don't want to be chasing just one wrinkle. I think it goes back to your earlier point about taking a taking a global approach to a whole face. Yeah. Um, but you were talking to me earlier when we were discussing this that you you're finding that thread lifting is a big thing, and, and yeah. I find that interesting. I think that to me is um, a, a trend that's going to take off in the next little while. And it's funny because it was yeah. around. It hasn't. It's not new. It's been around for a long time, but it it does seem like it's kind of having a resurgence. Um, how do you yeah, find well, it? It was, just, I mean, I think it was in Canada and then, and then they got pulled off the market and then they, you know, revamped the threads, been in the U S for a couple of years. It just became approved in Canada. The one brand that is approved, um, which is the silhouette InstaLift. They, I think the approval came in around, I want to say like March or April, like for this poor company, like right in the middle of the shutdown. Um, I mean, there's, you can get a lot of threads in Canada, but they're not approved. So this mm -hmm. is the only one that's Health Canada approved. And so that's the only one that I would do. Um, it's interesting. I think, again, it goes back to education. People have to understand, like, when I do a thread lift and you do a facelift, you know, that's not the same thing. Right. Um, right. So it's, it's educating people, you know, what kind of improvement they're going to get. But it is great because there's some people that have great volume and they just need that little bit of lift. I think thread lifts can be great for that. Um, yeah. So where, where is it filling? What niche is it filling in your practice? So I think it's for lift when you don't need volume. Um, I think necks are going to be an important area that mm -hmm. we can treat people who just aren't quite ready for uh, a neck lift or just aren't interested in surgery. Um, you know, it's a little bit like injectable Sculptra, at least in the, in the upper face. And I love Sculptra. 
um, because you know you can you can vector a bit with sculpture and get some of that lift, and then you get a little bit of volume, and I think skin improvement as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it's uh, I think it has its place. Um, time will tell. Yeah, I, I'm excited to see see where that goes. To be quite honest, I think I think um, I, I think the filler market has probably reached its max i think i think there there is almost kind of a tendency now to go kind of have people get overfilled because there's it's so accessible and it seems to be um it seems to be a kind of an answer to every problem these days and and uh, i think that's i don't necessarily think that's good and uh, i think threads could potentially um, get people to move away from kind of the overfilled face look so I, I think it's a great, great new trend, actually. I, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to see how, how it, um, how it changes things long term and, and where it all. How do you feel about non-surgeons doing threads? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a, I mean, I think all of these things are surgical procedures. They're just minor surgical procedures, first Absolutely. off. Absolutely. And, um. I, I do get nervous about how uh, casual we have all become about all of these procedures. Yeah. Um, I, and I think you alluded to that earlier, that uh, they are so accessible uh, that it, we're very, very casual. We're thinking that these things are like getting a cut in a color, you know, haircut in color. And and they're not. They have real consequences. They are minor surgical procedures. They can be done poorly. And to be honest, they cost a lot of money. So you kind of, if you're paying a lot of money, you're hopefully getting it done by somebody who's a, who knows what they're doing and can kind of manage it properly. So I, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure that there's an easy answer to that. I think it comes down to how, um, how good the person is and how much experience they've had. But but there, there are a lot of non-physicians that this has become open to, and I, I think that's a little bit of a concern for sure. Yeah, yeah, I think so. What, I mean, what when we do in our office, that? we definitely treat it as a, as a procedure. Everything is sterile. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, in terms of, it's the highest level that we do. Everything else we do clean. Um, you know, in terms of gloves and things, this is sterile, sterile fields, sterile gloves, sterile towels. Um, you know, big prep on the patients. And I think it, when people say, oh, you know, it's just like getting filler. It's not, it's a, it is a big procedure and it has some downtime, but then, you know, like all things, it's risk reward, you know, a little bit more downtime, a bit more lift, a bit more long lasting results. Yeah. And, and as you say, there are different types of threads out there and, and there's only one of them that's health can approved, but there's a bunch of them that are FDA approved and, they're very different. They are very different. Yeah, they're like the PDO threads. Yeah, yeah, they're very, yeah. they're very different. And the other thing I think is um, that we have to stay aware aware of is that there are, you know, some of these things can have long term effects, and they can kind of linger around and come back. And for instance, I'll use the example of of fillers, like large volume filler augmentation. It shouldn't necessarily be such a casual thing because it can have long-term consequences. And I, I certainly see patients, not not a lot, but the occasional patient who has things like recurrent swelling, you know, um, and doesn't know what to do about it or doesn't kind of recognize why it's there. And this could be years after the fact, or they get granulomas, or they get you know this or that. And so, 
I, I just think we, um, we can't be so casual about these things. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there definitely, um, there definitely are risks. And, and that's one of the things that I always go over with my patients. I say, look, I'm going to tell you the scariest things so that, <laughs> that you, you know, so that you're not going to go home and read about the internet and then wonder why I didn't tell you. So I want to tell you everything. So, you know, I'm being completely truthful about you, but then I'll tell you my experience over the years how often we see this. I treat a lot of other people's patients when they run into problems, you know, and I've held a lot of hands through these procedures. And, you know, thankfully, you know, I, everyone's gotten through it. Right. But uh, I think it's important that people know what's out there and that it isn't just a color and a cut. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it should be done in the grand scheme, like in the global sense of managing someone's aesthetics long-term and not just kind of one-off procedures where, which I think happens yeah, a lot. Yeah. And, um, and, and that's absolutely part of the, yeah, of the, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I think that kind of the, the filler thing is, you know, I see it a lot. I see kind of people having large volumes. Um, and, and, you know, there was an article in Pla- the PRS journal, plastic reconstructive surgery last month, uh, where, um, patients were had MRIs years after having filler and you could see there's still filler in them even I think one of the patients was over 10 years after having had yeah and so uh, I think I think these are kind of things that like I said I mean they're just not to be taken casually like they're just kind of should be managed they should be managed in a long-term place where you know that's reputable and yeah um, for sure and we see that clinically though like patients will say how long does this last and I'll say, you know what, if you do, like, we, you know, that's a, it could be a disadvantage or advantage because I'll tell patients if you just top things up a little bit, I do think that some of the newer filler kind of grabs onto the old and almost renews it a little bit. And that's maybe what we're seeing in that PRS article. Yeah, yeah. And, and I saw it, you know, there was a discussion about the Moderna vaccine. I had a, I had a note about that. And I know you have talked about that. Um, what did you think about the the incidence of swelling after the COVID vaccine? It's probably, uh, I think there was only three patients in those trials that had facial swelling after filler yeah. injections and having the vaccine. Is that right? Yeah. Did you? Yeah. Have- so I think there's a couple things. Yeah, there was three. Um, but those are three patients who swelled that we know had filler. How many patients had the vaccine and had had filler and didn't swell. So you don't know what the, you know, what the denominator is on that. It's not totally unexpected. We see people that whose fillers will swell if they have a common cold, they have their teeth clean, they get a vaccine. Um, the nice part about all, all these cases is that they all resolve usually within days. Um, I know personally of three other cases of people who have reacted uh, a paramedic, a dermatologist, and a dermatology resident who have reacted post-vaccine. And again, same thing with conservative management. They were all back to baseline within a week. So, you know, what I've been telling my patients and any media that reach out is I don't think a history of having filler is a reason to not get the vaccine. Go for the vaccine. If you run into any problem, you know, any issues, swelling or other issues, we can always deal with yeah. And how long after they had their filler injections, did they, did they get their vaccine? I, Was this a the recent dermatologist thing? and the dermatology resident, I mean, they, I think they'd had 
a long-term relationship with fillers. <laughs> so I don't think it was, right. I don't think, yeah. Um, and I think the same thing with the paramedic, um, my colleague who did that, I think it was a long-term patient of his. So it wasn't that they were close to each other, but I'm telling my patients yeah. two weeks before they get their first vaccine and then, and not to get, and then they, I don't want them to do anything until two weeks after their last vaccine, if they're doing the two, the two step vaccine. Yeah. Um, what about energy devices? Uh, that, that's, that's a big thing that you guys do. Um, what energy devices are you excited about in your practice? So we just purchased a, um, a laser, um, the beginning of this year, a second one. Um, we had a site on laser since we started. Um, so we do fractionated laser, fractionated erbium YAG, um, broadband light, which is the planet's most powerful IPL. Uh, Hero uh, is a, their new um, take on uh, BBL or broadband light, um, high energy rapid output. So the treatments are really fast, really comfortable. Um, so I'm excited about that. We have Halo. Um, you know, I think uh, what I love doing in my practice is taking, you know, different devices and treatments that we have and then combining them. So for example, we love combining broadband light with clear and brilliant laser. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you get a gestalt where you get a, a better uh, outcome than if you did one and then the other say a week later or two weeks later. Um, for skin uh, tightening and lifting, we love doing Althera combined with Radiesse. We're always trying to look to combine things to give patients, you know, uh, have like less less time in the chair, better outcomes, longer lasting outcomes, and and I think more natural outcomes as well. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Um, I know you guys have a Amcella chair. How do you? How do you? Oh like, yeah, 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 yeah. We do. Yeah. How do you? How do you? The Amcella is from BTL. Is there? Um, magnetic, uh, electromagnetic field, high intensity electric magnetic field that is used to treat uh, women's urinary incontinence. Um, right. I, I, I thought it was interesting you guys had that. that. Is that something that you found is popular amongst your patients? You know, it's not as popular as I think it should be when you look <laughs> at the amount of ads you see for Depends on TV, <laughs> at the bus stop, in magazines. I'm like, why? Why are people wearing Depends? You know, you probably spend $2,000 a year on Depends and you could, and it's, you know, you're still peeing your pants. But um, anyway, that's, that's the mom of one in me. But, um, yeah, yeah. you know, so I, I think a lot of people don't know about this treatment and it's, you know, it's really interesting. It's a chair that you sit on fully clothed. You sit on it for half an hour. You do it twice a week for three weeks. And most of our patients um, find it makes a significant uh, improvement in, um, you know, uh, peeing when they laugh or sneeze, having to urgently run to the bathroom. You know, there are women that know like literally where every bathroom is in Toronto because they don't venture out of their house without knowing where the next nearest bathroom is. And that's, you know, it's really no way to live. Um, so it's been really great for the patients that have tried it, but it's not something we really advertise and we wish that more people knew about it. Um, and it's been a bit of a word of mouth. We'll just cut, we casually mention it to people. And um, yeah, I have to say it's one of those treatments that, um, you know, we brought in all like selfishly for us. We're an office full of women, um, <laughs> but we mostly had children. And yeah. 
And it's the one that I get the most like flowers and hugs and thank yous for because it's, it's a game changer. Like yeah. it's very, it's, it's not a lot of dignity in peeing your pants. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then the question is, why do we have it as a derm office? I think it's because we see a lot of women and we are women and we know devices. So I just think the gynecologists, they, they're just getting into all this technology and things like that. So we, we're really comfortable with technology. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean that's a that's a great point. I think I, I feel the same way. I feel like we we have a very strong relationship with device companies. We understand the language of devices. We understand how to manage them. But it kind of crosses over into the role of from the role of a physician into the role of a business manager and somebody who can manage devices, manage a practice, manage services. Um, and, and how do you kind of juggle those two? kind of roles is that do you enjoy do you enjoy one over the other or do you think you, you you can't have one without the other I, th- I think you can't have one without the other I have a, a partner another dermatologist Dr. Sonia Cook and so that actually has been great for me because we we both have different strengths um and you know if it was up to me I'd probably buy a new device every week yeah I'm, when I'm she like goes you, on vacation yeah. she actually says don't buy any lasers <laughs> I, i'm with you i so, love them i'm addicted to them <laughs> yeah yeah like it's like you know it's a bad shopping habit like you think the shoes are expensive the lasers are really bad <laughs> but uh yeah but actually you know during the pandemic i think i've been in great so we just built a new office and that was you know that that put it you know put some pressure on. Um, but I've been kind of getting more into the, into the business side of things and, and managing staff. And because, you know, we were just kind of by the skin of our pants when we first started. If, if money was sitting in the bank and we were taking a bit of it home, then we thought we were doing great. But now, you know, I'm working for, with like performance goals with my team and we set up, you know, our mission statement and our values. So everyone knows sort of where the bus is headed and um tracking things like we didn't track anything for years yeah um so and i i kind of love making spreadsheets and doing those sorts of things so um that's my jam when i'm not when i'm not seeing patients <laughs> well that that's great do you, do you find that that helps your satisfaction amongst your employees as well I think so. Like right now we're really doing a big push like for, so setting performance goals for the year. And I think it just, it, everyone needs to know what they're being judged on. And um, so this way they are part of the discussion about these are the things, you know, like they gave me their list of things they thought they could accomplish in the year. We added ours in, we sit down and look over the list and we talk about what we call smart goals. So they should be specific. It should be measurable. It should be attainable relevant to our mission and their own personal, um, you know, goals and then time oriented. So, you know, if it's a, you know, it's something like I want you to answer, you know, emails within four hours every day or two hours, whatever depends on their role. Um, Or is it a bigger project? Like we're working on standard operating procedures for the front desk. So that's a big project. Do you think as a team of the front desk, could you have that done by the end of April? So, and then they'll be evaluated on those things in June and then again in December. And um, so it's not a surprise as to, you know, where the evaluation, what the evaluation is based on. So just like when we were residents, you know, you knew what you were being judged on. Yeah. So that's interesting. How, how did you learn that? Is that just through experience? Because a, a lot of physicians 
aren't this sophisticated to be able to manage employees in such a manner and provide provide yeah. real feedback um, again it, they don't kind of view themselves as as a business in a traditional sense yeah it's trial and error and I mean I I do I kind of love leadership and management is leadership's always been something that's been interested. So how do you inspire people? How do you lead by example? Um, and so whether it's, whether you're teaching residents or whether it's your staff, we, we, you know, it's just evolved over the year, doing lots of reading. My father and my brother are in business. So I lead on them a lot to ask what, what they do with their employees, how they incentivize staff. Um, and so that's been really helpful talking to friends, um, we actually, uh, we hired an HR consultant, um, just to help us with, you know, contracts and things like that. And she's been great because this, you know, I said, she's like, do you need anything else? And you help with anything else? I said, okay, well, I, I think I'm really bad at evaluating my employees. She's like, okay, let's talk about that. Let's make a form. But, and so she's been really helpful, wow. um, to just sort of getting us up to, just par on that. So what, what's your goal? I believe for... in using experts, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a great point. Uh, what, what, what's your goal for the practice, you know, in yeah. the next year, two years, five years? I, mean, I think it's just that we want to continue to grow. We want to have a good reputation. I think, you know, most of our patients, we don't, we don't externally advertise with, with the exception of a little social media here and there, but that's more for fun. Um, so if we can just keep, you know, growing and keeping a busy practice that are referred from current happy patients, you know, that's, that's my ideal. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, um, you know, we just, we want to be known as like the go-to in Toronto. Yeah, that's great. Um, have we, have you seen the new Ontario guidelines on, advertisements um, for physicians and physician offices. Do you want to discuss that? <laughs> yeah. So I worked with a couple of, yeah, I worked with a couple of different groups to put submissions in. Yeah. Um, I've been involved in the Canadian Dermatology Association and Dermatology Association of Ontario and Canadian Association of Aesthetic Medicine. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of people that were looking to get opinions on that. So, I mean, for people who don't know, we're talking about whether like, physicians previously couldn't use before and after photos in their advertising, right? And so, and there's a lot of other rules. There's a, that's yeah, there's really a whole bunch the of other one ones. My eye that's changed. Well, I mean, to me, there's a bunch of things. But that's the big change. The rest yeah. of it. I don't know. I mean, I, I you know, there's a there's a bunch of them that You're cutting I was. Out. Sorry, um, there, there's a bunch of things that caught my eye. One of them was um, uh, not being able to use the name of a device or um, or really a. Uh, but that's not new. That's old. Yeah, I I guess my my question is how that translates in an aesthetic practice where devices are really well yeah. well known I... and well understood and. And patients are coming and asking for them and they want to kind of look to see right. what, what's being offered. There's a few things like that that kind of don't make yeah. sense to me, I guess. Yeah. So I think, that, I mean, that the not being able to use, you know, brand names, whether it's device or product, um, with the exception of Botox, you're allowed to use Botox. They consider that generic. 
you know, that's, I think they just reiterated those same rules. I think that does really tie our hands because, you know, I just went through process of buying a, a laser. Mm-hmm. I bought the laser with, it was three times more expensive than any other laser option of the ones I looked at because I really believe in that laser. I think it's the safest. I think it gives the best results for my patients. I think it's the most ergonomically uh, well-designed for my staff to be comfortable and be able to safely do the treatments. And so I think it's important that I have a BBL and not some generic IPL. So, you know, but I, again, I'm technically not supposed to be able to advertise that. I have Althera, that's the, you know, microfocused ultrasound that has visualization. So I can see that SMAS, I can see the collagen I'm trying to get at. It's not just a machine, it's a generic machine from China that's just an ultrasound that runs over the face. You know, on the other, and then, for example, if we're talking about, um, you know, polyolactic acid, like there's only one out there, it's Sculptra. So it doesn't really make any sense for me to not be able to use the name. But yeah. Uh, so I think that really ties our hands. And then people who aren't physicians can throw around all the brands they want and in fact get paid to throw those brands around. Yeah, I think that's a big problem. Yeah. And not to mention that um, I think now the, um, the social media world, the internet world is not limited geographically. So when people are kind of searching you, they're not necessarily just searching you in comparison with other people in the GTA. They're really looking at you and comparing with what they're seeing in Los Angeles and you know in Europe, and Asia, New York, Asia. Yeah. Like there's really no boundaries. And so um, I guess the question is really like how how can you have limits that are geographic when really the, the internet and social media in particular is not limited at all geographically. Um, and yeah. it, it really yeah. just kind of makes it look very different when you, when you're a physician in Ontario, I guess. Yeah, that's a really good point. I never thought about the G I just thought more about, you know, doctors versus non-doctors and what we're allowed to do, but you're right that the geographic thing is really interesting. And, you know, I'll have a lot of procedures that I'll comment on, um, kind of hint at, and then people will write in the comments. They'll say, oh, can you show us a before and after? And until recently I had to say, well, actually it's against the culture of physicians and surgeons. You know, I was pretty strict about that rule. Mm-hmm. Um, so now it's gonna be interesting to see what happens. Those floodgates are going to be open, but you know, they, they gave you parameters on the, like the photos, it has to be your own photos and the lighting, but how is that even possible? I, I don't think. I, yeah, I know. There's so many, there, there's so many questionable um, things in there. I, I actually was hoping to talk to somebody about it, but, um, but they declined. <laughs> uh, from someone from the college? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I they just declined to come, come on. And so I was, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that or not, but. Okay. <laughs> no comment. I, yeah, I, I just <laughs> thought it'd be a really interesting discussion, you know. And and again, it goes to this thing about well, you know, we should ta- have these discussions in an open manner. I think with people, the public, who are really the ones that are watching and getting educated. I mean, these are all really educational tools for for people who want these services. So, yeah. Um, I mean, I I think there's 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 a difference between, for instance, a uh, um, a person who's, for instance, a cardiologist who's treating someone for high blood pressure and is looking at you know the specific high blood pressure medications, and um, I don't know if patients need to know the specific kind of 
ones that they're promoting. I think, but you know, when you're talking about you know Botox and Dysport, um, or as you say, Sculptra versus you know some other option, uh, I I think patients are actually highly sophisticated and very very knowledgeable about what those options are. And I certainly get the patients who come to see me are very, very specific in what they're asking for, what what product, you know, they're very sophisticated in their product knowledge. Uh, right. And so I, I think we kind of underestimate that. It's, it's not, they're not kind of just really, it, I think the days of them just doing whatever you tell them to is are gone, at yeah. least from what I see. Yeah, I think so. It's, I think it's a paternalistic attitude to expect that patients aren't yeah. going to seek out that information. And then and assert themselves based on their, you know, their research and education. They, and it's, so if they're going to be doing research and being educated, I think it's like we're, for, we're, we're back to our same conversation where the people who are experts need to be the ones to be able to have those discussions in public so that we can lead that, that discussion. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's happened to me. You know, I, I'm not ashamed to say it happens to me routinely where somebody comes and asks for, a product or a specific technique where I actually have to go look and they, you know, they found it in Brazil or, you know, some, some site in Los Angeles and, you know, and I, I got to go find out and they're, they know more about that particular thing and they're asking me for it. And so I, I just think we, we got to get rid of this idea that these people don't know anything and they're just coming and they're just waiting for you to guide them. I mean, this is kind of an interactive relationship yeah, yeah. in aesthetics. So anyway, yeah. I agree. <laughs> um, well, that, can you tell me a little bit of what you think the future holds? So future trends, future opportunities in dermatology, what's exciting? Um, what is around the corner? We talked a little bit about trends. What else is out there that um, you see as being exciting in the next year? Yeah, I mean, I think in the dermatology world itself, we're just seeing fantastic you know, drugs that are coming out now for psoriasis, for eczema, uh, for alopecia areata, there's some good medications that are on the way for that. So, you know, one of the, I think one of the questions that we, we didn't touch on is like, wh- what's the, what's the role, be- what's the, the line between medical and aesthetic dermatology? And I think it's very fluid. So someone that comes in to see me, you know, for a little bit of Botox is also going to be concerned about you know, hair loss. So, um, where does the medical and the aesthetic line go there? So I think there's lots going coming down the pipe, all, you know, skin cancer treatments. There's always, um, there's been huge gains in, in that since we finished residency, which is really nice to see on the aesthetic side. Um, you know, I have, I don't know if I've seen anything extremely innovative lately. I think we had a lot of innovation Now maybe things are being held back because of, um, the pandemic, but where, I really think things are going to go is going to be in combination therapies. Yeah. So that's something I really believe in. I think that's how you keep people looking great and natural. Um, that sort of sleight of hand where you don't know what someone's done, but they just always look great. Um, in our practice, one of the things that we're really trying to do is partner with our patients and make a plan. So it isn't just this like buckshot approach you know, that we, we kind of know where we're going and we're combining energy-based devices, fillers, Botox, threads, fabulous skincare, um, and really giving people a plan. So it's that's more philosophical like where we think it's going, but um, that's where I want things to go. I love that. I love combination therapies. I love 
thinking about kind of multimodality options. I, I just love that answer. Um, I'm going to finish off with some quick hits, Julia. Okay. Okay. So some quick questions for you. What's your favorite sunscreen moisturizer? I know you've talked about moisturizers. In the uh, past. My current favorite sunscreen is, oh, it's right on my desk. Not promo shot. <laughs> Illumier clear shield. Like I sit by my window all day, so I, I reapply. Uh, great sunscreen, and it gives you this natural dewy glowiness to your skin. So even if I'm not wearing foundation, um, good. And it protects me from the sun. <laughs> um, what's the most challenging problem that you treat? Don't tell me melasma. You already talked about that. Yeah, the most challenging problem that I treat. Oh, it was like maybe the overfilled face, trying to talk people down from that cliff, you know, trying to convince them that I need to dissolve things a little bit, take it slow, and then we and work back up. <laughs> <laughs> I like that answer too. Um, do you have a skincare service that you personally like the most? Uh, for myself, you know what I really love, which I hasn't quite taken off in Canada, is um, injectable hydration micro droplet filler. So Bolite is the one that we use a lot of. I think it's amazing. Makes your skin firm, glow. You don't look filled. Um, lasts for six to nine months. I think I don't understand why that hasn't taken off yet, um, but it's really popular. I love it myself. and It's popular in our practice. Interesting. Oh, and, and what about energy devices? Do you have a do you have a favorite oh. one? Uh, I like BBL. Yeah. So I think there's you know it it especially this new um, hand piece that we have that does the uh, continuous motion gets rid of red, gets rid of brown, just brings your skin back to that natural color. And there's lots of studies that show if you do BBL on a regular basis, which is anywhere from two to four times a year. Your skin will look younger after 10 years than it did before you started treatment. And there's um, a significant study out of Stanford um, published on that. Uh, I had uh, Aaron Burton from Cyton on. Uh, oh, yeah. I have to watch that one. Yeah, it, that, that was a great. I, uh, he's a great guy, great CEO. We had, we had a lot of fun. And he, he asked me, I said, I love the BBL. And he asked me if I'd started treating myself with a BBL, like literally kind of using the handpiece on myself. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I guess apparently he said that there's there's a number of people he knows that do that, that like doing that oh, to yeah. themselves. <laughs> I couldn't do that. Do you have the hero, the BBL hero? Or just no, the BBL? we have the BBL, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you have to get them to upgrade to the hero. But uh, yeah. I thought that was a. I thought that was a hilarious. I could just. I could just picture people kind of in the clinic closing the doors and firing this thing off in their well, own face. I mean, there are some dermatologists, you know, aesthetic physicians. I have one poor woman. She lives like in the middle of nowhere in Newfoundland. So if she comes to town. You know, she's a physician. I treat her, but she, um, you know, she has to do a lot of her own work because she's the only one in town. <laughs> I, I don't know how anyone could possibly inject their own lips. I think that's just crazy town. Yeah, I would agree with that. That is that is taking a turn towards crazy town. <laughs> um, okay, last question. What is the one global issue that concerns you the most in the world? Oh, <laughs> that's a hard one. Um, I worry 
about the power that media has to control things. You know, I wonder, you know, how, like, like, does the tail wag a dog or is the dog wagging the tail? You know, so I'm skeptical as much as I do a lot of media, I'm skeptical, particularly around politics, the environment, pandemic. You know, I think that media has too much control over what we're being fed, how we're being fed it. Um, you know, the Facebook algorithms, Instagram algorithms. I think you can go, you know, if you're on your computer and you start watching YouTube, you can get sent down this path and it can totally skew your opinion on things. It's like people that only watch Fox News versus people that only watch CNN. And you're just, it's just, it's just reiterating what you already think and not challenging you to look at things from a different perspective. So I think, you know, media is, is controlling us more than we think. And I don't think we know the full story of what's going on, whether it's in politics, in medicine, you know, right down to a skincare ingredient. That's a, pessimistic. <laughs> no, that's that. Those are that's a great answer, and it's a thoughtful thing to kind of bring up. What's in store for you over the next six months? Oh, what's in store for me for the next six months? Desperately waiting for the boat to get back in the water, hoping for my daughter to go back to school. Um, yeah, I think we're just going to keep working on things at the office, on the team, and making us like this, you know, the best, strongest team that we can be and um, keeping our patients safe, keeping our patients happy. Uh, I don't have any big plans. Maybe I might learn how to play the guitar again. <laughs> and did you play guitar pre previously? I did. I played guitar a little bit when I was a resident, and then I sort of let it go. So I'm either going to pick up the guitar again or clean out my basement. I don't know which. Well, I can't think of anything better than playing guitar on a boat after this whole pandemic is over. <laughs> That would be a dream. Well, Julia, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I had a blast doing this. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, well, great. I hope we get to have this conversation uh, um, over dinner or drinks in real life sometime. Yes, we Carry definitely on. have to do this in person once this pandemic is over. Okay, thank you so much. Take care. All right, thanks. Have a great day. Bye-bye.